welcome to Doing a World of Good, a podcast from the American Institute of Chemical Engineers and generously supported by Raj and Kumla Gupta, shining the light on the positive works of our members and supporters. I'm your host, Bob Norb. Now, it goes without saying that careers in chemical engineering evolve over time. You may change jobs, you may get promotions, or you may even decide to pursue completely new career objectives. But managing the twists and turns can be kind of tricky, and without some kind of basic structure, a game plan, and yes, even risk-taking, they can often lead to unsatisfying outcomes. So on today's show, we're going to talk about strategies for adding purpose to both your career and retirement goals with two of our esteemed AICHE leaders. And first up, we have Deborah Gruby, owner and principal at Operations and Safety Solutions, LLC. With over 40 years of experience, Deb has an extensive background in both industry and private practice and is currently co-authoring a book on an engineer's professional responsibility. Deb, welcome to the program. Hello. Glad to be here. And next, we have James Porter, former chief engineer for DuPont, who is now retired and running his own consultancy, Sustainable Operations Solutions, LLC, where he helps clients improve workplace and process safety, as well as capital projects and operational effectiveness. Welcome, Jim. Thanks a lot, Bob. I really appreciate it. It's an opportunity I've looked forward to. Awesome. Well, let's get right into it then. Now, in, in large part, the inspiration for this entire episode, the reason we're talking to you both, was from an article that you wrote, Deb, and it detailed out your own career journey. In the piece, you talked a lot about the concept, though, of having a transition map. I love this concept. I really got into understanding where you were talking from, where you were coming from. And could you please explain this idea a little bit more clearly for the benefit of the audience and let them know what you mean when you say that you should really work on having a transition map right from the start of your career? Sure, Bob. It all starts with the thought that a career transition of any sort can be positive and it can be negative. And it's important for folks in order to maximize the opportunity for positive outcomes. The first thing you have to be is sensitive to what are the skills, knowledge, and experience that you may need to be successful in the new role that you're selecting, whatever that may be. And I had read somewhere early on in my career that if you change uh, a lot of things, a lot of aspects of of a jump, a career transition, if you change a lot of that at one time, and I'll limit that to three items, position, company, and location. If you change all three of those, it's a much more difficult transition, and you have to ensure that you're trying to mitigate or minimize the number of changes you make at once so that you can maximize your chance for success. That's so, so that's think, so great. So that's, you, sim- that's simple. Yeah, when you when you put it in that perspective, it makes a lot of sense because it's it's basic science. You don't change too many variables when you're testing something. You want to find out which variable makes the difference. And it's it's very engineering-minded in terms of the way that you approached your career. Sometimes too much so. <laughs> well, good point there. 
Well, Jim, having a plan is great, but as we all know, life usually doesn't happen to plan. So how does the modern chemical engineer um, stay ahead of the curve and prepare themselves to take advantage of unexpected opportunities? How do you stay fluid, if I can use a punny word here, in the process of being a professional chemical engineer in today's society? Well, first let me say that... um having a plan is critical in anything that you do if you're looking to get a successful outcome. Um, but I'd also think that you need to recognize that the plans don't always have to be complete. They don't always have to be in great detail at different periods, particularly as you look at your life and you look at your career. The Having the plan is, is key, but I would also offer a thought here that I found to be beneficial to me a couple of times is you need to have a backup plan. You know, one of the things that uh, you mentioned uh, in some conversations that we've had and you just mentioned here again is that things don't always go the way that you plan. So you need to be prepared to react uh, and to actually to respond to situations. And having a backup plan uh, is uh, an alternative approach, really, I think, is a critical piece to being able to be successful in the long run. But to really stay connected, you need to get outside yourself in terms of how you understand the current state as well as how you understand the opportunity. And one of the things that I have found that was the most valuable for me would be to form networks or to be parts of networks. By that, I simply mean getting to know uh, other people and getting to know their perspectives enable you to get a better or more, more clarity on your own. And one of the things that I think that really does make a, a real difference is that if they can be a face-to-face as much as possible. I know that the world today has become very electronics-oriented, and I understand there's all types of social networking that are, that's managed through electronic means, but I would offer from my own personal perspective around the notion not just of planning but executing the plan successfully around career as well as personal obligations and the, and the aspects of impact on your personal life. It's, it's more important from my point of view to have more face-to-face contact in terms of that networking. So things like AICHE and things like uh, professional associations and others where you can actually come together with other people and learn and understand uh, really were things that I found to be very helpful. And they helped you manage the transitions and understand what the implications would be and the possible outcomes of those transitions. Now, Deb, yeah. You're gonna I was going to say I fully support that from a standpoint of we are human beings. And while we think of ourselves and we act sometimes like human doings, when you start to look at my career map and the, the comments made earlier, the network is essential to the idea of trying to support that whole set of thinking because you can change positions and you can change companies and work with a totally different group of people. But if you have a broader network, you will get insights faster, which will help you be more successful. Can you give a specific example about that, Deb? I mean, in terms of like how the network helped you in particular at at a critical juncture in your career where maybe more variables were changing than you felt comfortable with. Sure. When I moved from an executive position at DuPont to an executive position at BP, I was changing companies, I was changing location, but I was not changing the job. Hmm. And so there was two out of three in my map that were changing. So I knew that this had some level of risk. 
What I had, though, was I had a university-based network with people that had worked at BP who I knew and who trusted me, and they helped me immensely by giving me straight skinny on the front end Mm. that I would have never gotten had I not been part of that broader university network and been active in it. So this notion of doing a world of good uh, and as Jim said, getting outside yourself is that networks are not things you draw from you originally. You have to put in first. So you have to invest in the network. And then at some point in time in the future, if you need a withdrawal, those people will will reciprocate. And so that's one of the examples that I would use as which really helped me in a transition. And uh, yeah, Bob, Bob, just just before we switch from perhaps uh, this this area of focus, let me offer sure. one other thought too around this notion of, uh, of networking. Networking can come in the form of of being a part of a group. It can also come in the form of being a part of a relationship. And uh, mentoring uh, both uh, works both ways. Uh, being a mentor and being mentored are excellent ways to also help not only refine the plan but work the plan. Because now you're getting information in uh, uh, that's very personal. You're also learning, and as you learn, you can teach, and as you teach, you will learn again. And so those processes around the issue of mentoring uh, is also something that works very well. And again, is something that's available through uh, various portion or various parts of uh, groups like AICHE. AICHE has a has an extensive mentoring type of arrangement that can help people be a part of their career, but also it can help them understand their uh, there are possibilities for this notion around doing a world of good. And this explains, this so perfectly illustrates why you've had such a tremendous dedication to the organization. I mean, AICHE seems to have played a crucial role for both of you in terms of uh, the development and the management of your transitions uh, throughout your career. Now, we, we've well, all- one, one thing one thing to recognize, too, as well, is uh, when I first came to work for the DuPont company, one of the things that the company was very strong on in terms of sponsoring was it expected you to be a part of your professional organizations because you were a professional. I'm a chemical engineer, as you obviously know, and uh, I was strongly supported not only to the in the in the sense of encouragement, but to some extent made it made it pretty obvious that from a career point of view, uh, my leadership, even though a lot of them weren't chemical engineers, expected me to not be a, not just be a part of, but to be supportive of, because they saw that as a way to help others as well as to help the company itself grow, both from a technological point of view as well as a human resource point of view. Mm, very interesting. Well, we've often discussed on this program the many evolving use cases for the profession. I mean, I've interviewed some pretty amazing people on this program, from groundbreaking medical applications to processes for emerging computer technologies. It's obviously inspiring a lot of new students to join the field, but how does the mid to late career professionals still get involved? How do they manage the kinds of transitions that are demanded upon professionals these days years after they've left the educational realm, years after they've left those moments where they're planning out where they're going to go forward in their career. Deb, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think it goes back to what Jim said earlier, this notion of, of networking. Mm. If you're, a, if you're a, a mid to late career professional and you uh, have not built a network that you think you might need, then there's 
you know, don't wait. This is not one of those things that you're, um, you know, you never do and you can you can't start uh, if it's too late in your life. That's not true at all. You can always join uh, in and you have to, again, make the effort. And I think mid to late career professionals have a lot going on in their lives, no doubt. But I also think that they have selected insights because of their maturity. They have insights into how things could be and they can make they know how to uh, work a room, for example, in a positive way. And you'd never know what those kinds of conversations are going to turn into. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like in that call for creating networks, creating relationships with other engineers, other professionals, seems to be a guiding thread throughout both of your stories. Um, how important is it, Jim, in terms of advancing your career to be a risk taker? I mean, how important is risk taking in all of this and how much risk is too much? How do you know? How do you balance? How do you build a transition map that gives you challenges but doesn't tip the boat over in the process? Well, that's a really good question. I, I think that, uh, um, first of all, I think people need to understand that uh, any desirable outcome is going to involve managing risk. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's career, or whether it's the projects or the work or the technologies that you're applying. Uh, all of it has some measure of risk associated with it. And you have to understand that it's not about risk taking in a classic context. It's about managing risk. If you look at your life and you look at your opportunities, both from a standpoint of career, as well as just uh, your day to day, you need to be able to also define for yourself uh, which risks are worth taking. And the only ones I can tell you that I was ever willing to take are those that had a uh, desired upside and had an acceptable or survivable downside. Okay. Mm, so it's important from a risk taking point of view to realize that there will be times and moments where you have to make decisions that aren't as clear cut as you would like them to be. So there's some element of risk associated with them, but you have to understand that risk well enough to know whether you can manage it or you can't. If you can't manage the risk, my advice to most people would be stay away from it. If you do believe that you can manage it effectively in a sense of helping move yourself forward or helping make yourself uh, uh, more capable, uh, then go ahead and take it. But I think the term risk taking, I would change it over to risk management, quite frankly, uh, because we're all exposed to risks on a day to day basis. And the key is to be able to manage them effectively so that they do not cause negative harm, but uh, they offer opportunities in terms of uh, better outcomes. Uh, does that help in terms of perspective? Uh, it helps out tremendously. Uh, Deb, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I, I would offer one, one additional thought. I think that different people have different appetites for risk and also different people have different abilities to assess their own skills. And I think the, uh, the aspect of this is that if you think you're better, I'll just say it very plainly, if you think you're better than you really are, then that's a risk that you need to be aware of going into it. If you have a tendency to always think that everything's going to be great and wonderful and that people are always going to be supportive and you can work to make it so, that's good. 
But sometimes there's folks that are uh, upset that you got the job and they didn't. There's a whole bunch of other things that go into it that I think uh, if you're not sensitive to that, that's where you need that plan B that Jim was talking about earlier. And it also uh, cements the idea that you need relationships with other engineers. You need that outside perspective, people you can trust. If you're not building a network, who do you vet these opportunities with? Who do you look toward to kind of expose your hidden blind spots within your own plan. Uh, Really, really great point. Well, and not only that, but this notion of if you're moving, if you want to move to something that's high tech and very unproven, uh, you have to be certain that you understand all that's required so that you can essentially shift your lifestyle to fit that. Because the the days may be very long. There may be no weekends. You know, there's the definition of the weekend becomes the time to catch up. And so you have um, many demands. And it's important to make sure if you're, you know, assessing the situation appropriately. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I once started, I didn't start out in chemical engineering. I started out in biomedical engineering. And I found out halfway through my sophomore year that I was going to not get a degree in biomedical engineering because they didn't exist and the field didn't exist. I was going to get a degree in engineering. And I thought, I don't want that. And so I started networking to find out that I could get a degree in chemical engineering with a biomedical option. And so anyway, I made that transition during my university time frame. And it's not unlike transitions that many others have made, but it took an, an, uh, an assessment and someone saying to me, look, if you really want to do biomedical engineering, you're going to have to get a PhD. And this was the early seventies. You're going to have to get a PhD. And I thought, no, I don't want a PhD. No offense <laughs> to those that have it, but no, I'm not, that's not me. And so I used that input from someone you know, that didn't come from me. They just said, look, the field's not well developed. You know, it sounds exciting and it is going to be great, but the field's not well developed. Yeah. And so that's, and so it's just really starting to come onto its own right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like the, the kudos for having the foresight to pursue something like that at such an early stage. But you're right. I mean, it's just like, it's only now that we're seeing a lot of the fruits of that kind of research starting to come to, come to, come to life at this point. Um, sometimes it's not career advancement that drives the individual. Um, sometimes it's the human impact that drives people. Things like third world outreach, education, mentoring. How does a busy engineer build these and other opportunities into their own trans- transition maps? Um, Jim, how did you, throughout your career, always look outside the, the day-to-day and look at the surrounding community and see, where can I apply my skills? Where can I apply my mentorship? Where can I apply my talents to help the community to be a better place? You know, that's, uh, I, I think it's um, incumbent on engineers. And maybe I'm going to overstate the case because of how I've always seen it. Uh, to look outside themselves, look outside the immediate work that they're doing and look at the skills and the competencies that they have and understand how they can deploy those uh, and use them in a way, as is said here, making doing, doing a world of good. 
Um, I think that if you look at uh, look at engineers and you look at the uh, the ethics requirements and other things associated with them, it almost requires that you do that. Uh, so to the point of the question about how does one work that, I'm going to say something here that may or may not be consistent with how Debbie sees things. But having said that, my view is if you really want to operate in a way where you maximize your potential for those types of, of affiliations, those types of contributions, those types of, uh, of uh, experiences, you need to work for a company that basically has a very solid uh, core value framework. Uh, I worked for the DuPont company for over 42 years, and DuPont had a set of core values around safety, health, environment, people treatment, and ethics. And if you think about those five things for a moment, and you then extrapolate an engineering competency out to how can I execute in those areas, you get outside the company and you get outside yourself very quickly. So my view is, is that you need to be in an environment that encourages that on the basis of the principles that are in place. And that enables you then not only to be able to see the opportunities, but to actually go out and to be a part of them. One of the things I found working for, in my case, the DuPont company, based on its core values, it encouraged me to get involved outside the company and outside myself in areas where we could have third world outreach. We could help with education and mentoring. And some of that was as a result of the support that they gave for me to be involved, for example, with AICHE. At one point in time, um, I was on the board of, uh, of uh, advisors, board of uh, directors for AICHE. DuPont sponsored that. They were willing to let me do and be a part of that. So part of it is, is to go find some place to work where the people that you're working with and the company that you're working for help support that. Secondarily, if you don't have that, I take you back to the notion of networks, networks and things of engineers without borders, uh, networks and things where people actually spend times building bridges. We had a wonderful opportunity recently as part of both Deb and I are in the National Academy of Construction, where a, a significant portion of money that was raised as part of, a, part of an auction base went to an organization that builds bridges. And when I mean bridges, it builds bridges across rivers in Africa where children can get to school without having to be uh, endangered in terms of the work that they do there. So I think that's pretty much the way I would, would, would comment on that about how one does it. One does it on the basis of one's own initiative, but one needs to be supported in doing that uh, in many instances, either by the organization like AICHE or supported by the company that they work for. Deb, that's a that's a pretty um, expansive view about how to choose a company. Do you agree? And how do you find how do you find the the information necessary to evaluate a company and know whether or not they're going to be supportive of these types of initiatives? I mean, like a big organization like Dupont has a lot of um, a lot of initiatives on record. You can look at their footprint. You can see what they've done in the past. But a smaller firm may not be as obvious in terms of this. Do you just need to ask and make it part of your initial yeah, you, discussions? You do. You you need to you need to make it as part of your initial investigations. But I would offer a thought here again that brings me back to places like ASCHE and in the case of uh, uh, some work that Deb and I are doing in the immediate area around. Uh, uh, the Engineers Club in Philadelphia, find locations where there are people who already have experience with a wide range of these companies. And you'll almost always find someone that has some personal experience with a company that you may be interested in or that you would like to become interested in and get the real story from them. 
Uh, I think that back to my point in the very beginning of this discussion, relationships, one-on-one, finding someone to talk to. I'm a little afraid that today a lot of the younger people depend too much on electronic communications in order to be able to get the real answer, if you know what I mean. So finding a way to engage through those types of relationships, I think, is the best way to do it. Because most people are going to tell you the truth. Yeah, I like working here. It's a good company to work for. Here's the issues that I see. These are the things that you can do, the opportunities that they will will, will avail to you. So I think that's the best way to go about it again, back to this notion of uh, one one person at a time in terms of their perspective based on their experience. Deb, any any thoughts on that? I mean, what did you do to evaluate the companies you work for in terms of understanding what their commitment to supporting your particular efforts would be? I, for, I first of all, the, the companies were very straightforward. When I made the transition from DuPont to BP, BP said one of the reasons they were hiring me was because I had that outside perspective that was so important. Oh, that's interesting. And c- and could bring that to them. And they fully supported. But, you know, at that point in time, I was on the NASA Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, and they supported my travel back and forth from the UK to the US, uh, you know, four to six times a year, depending on how many meetings we had. So they, they were um, very much in favor of that. I think that that can also be a strength when you go to move because you can, your network will tell you essentially what is this, you know, where are the risks points or the, the, the sensitive points for you in where you're, you know, heading. And I think too that we, um, we sometimes forget to under, we forget to realize that while the industry may be changing, the, the fundamental principles of how business gets done and how people work to trust each other is the same. And I think that's the, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's work that's being given away or not. And when it comes to the smaller company, I think that's a, that is a particularly difficult question because the people who lead the smaller companies, if they have a broad vision, they will see the outside, the quote unquote outside work as developmental opportunities for their engineers that actually serve as a form of can serve as a form of indebtedness from the for the young engineer and to the company around the fact that I this company has allowed me to grow because not all the growth occurs when you're behind the desk or on the job much of the growth and I'll tell you much of my growth occurred in my early years in the community working as part of organizations because if you can lead a volunteer organization, you can lead an organization that support that has reporting to you, and you have salary administration over them. I, I can vouch for that. It's a it's a lot harder to to manage a bunch of volunteers than it is to manage anybody in a professional situation. It's uh, definitely a challenge, and it shows real leadership. Um, Jim. I'm going to throw this next question to you because you know, I know you're retired, but you're not really retired. So we'll go with that. But retirement is, isn't always the end of a career transition roadmap. Uh, often it's a whole new beginning. How are you using retirement to fulfill goals you couldn't achieve in your corporate life? And how would you recommend that others in that similar position use that time to continue to transition into new opportunities? 
Well, that's a that's a really big question. I, I would tell you that uh, most people that look at me uh, in the past have referred to me as failing retirement. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that uh, uh, that's not actually true. I, I think that uh, retirement is a concept uh, that has um, uh, been misunderstood by a lot of people. Uh, in my case, it, I didn't really retire. I transitioned from working for the DuPont company uh, to working for myself. Um, mm-hmm. And that transition has enabled me to be, uh, as you as you asked the question, something to achieve. I, I find that uh, um, I must be a, um, a frustrated teacher at heart because what I've found I've been able to do since I have left DuPont and started to do some, some direct consulting is I have found that I have been able to practice what I always thought was the right way to work it. Now, I think I briefly mentioned it earlier, and that's to learn, teach, learn. To learn something, to teach it, and then you learn as you go. And what I have found by consulting is that I have been able to go out and to offer some of the experience and the, the capabilities and the, uh, the knowledge that I gained in 42 years of, of doing work around with, with a major corporation to help other companies, large and small, to be able to do what they need to do better. Um, I've been involved with a, lot of lo- with a lot of large projects where I've been able to help them see the issues that they couldn't see because of their lack of experience in some of these areas. And it's enabled me then to, to uh, be able to contribute, uh, continue to contribute, but to contribute in ways that uh, I wasn't able to uh, in the last few years that I was working, working for DuPont. I, I also think that... Uh, um, it's important to recognize that uh, um, the idea of, of, uh, of retirement uh, needs to be managed in a context of your whole life. We think of it in terms of work life, but you need to think of it in terms of your whole life. One of the things I've been able to do now is I've been able candidly to spend more time with, uh, with immediate family and do things in a way that I wasn't able to do them as effectively in the past. So on a net basis, the transition has been very positive for me. I get to continue to practice being an engineer. I get to continue to practice being a part of a professional association and, and affiliation. And I've been able to spend more time with, uh, with, my, uh, with my family. So from a practical point of view, I think retirement as a transitionary state has been a very positive thing for me. And I am continuing to enjoy it. That sounds wonderful. It sounds like a grand vision. Um, Deb, any advice that you would give to anybody in that situation? Oh, yeah. I would tell you that the amount of you are now able, once you now have more control over your your minutes in your day, you now are able to take on projects that you could not take on and do good justice to them while you were working full time for someone else. And so the idea of being able to uh, consider writing books to take on a broader community or more involved community organizational efforts, I think are are key to uh, making that transition. And perhaps I could say, again, I'm like failing retirement too, because it's one of those things that, uh, there's not enough hours in the day and you wonder where did the day go? (laughs) And I was busy the whole day. And so it's, it's, it's it's just like, um, at some level it's, uh, like working, 
uh, but you're doing things you really want to do. And so that becomes, it or ignites passion, so to speak. Any last pieces of advice, advice, Deb, anything that you would want to leave the audience with in terms of your own experience uh, dealing with transitions in your life? Yes, I think there's one. I, I found it very helpful to have a professional engineering license because it allowed me to uh, establish a credential and also to more easily make the transitions from uh, company to company and from uh, full-time multinational employment to my own company. Uh, the PE license was essential. And I would strongly encourage anyone uh, that wants to do that to uh, consider getting one because you don't miss it until you need it and don't have it. Mm, mm, good advice. And Jim, any last thought, any last piece of advice you'd want to leave the audience with? Uh, I would uh, just uh, say ditto to, uh, to Deb's point around the PE. But I'd also offer a thought that came from a, uh, a, a person when I was uh, still much younger, in fact, even pre-graduation uh, pre, uh, in engineering. And the comment that was made to me was we were talking about life and talking about how things worked and how they didn't, was they said, uh, do what makes you happy and the rewards and the contributions will come. Good advice. And I can't offer a thought that's any broader than that are one that I think is any more important for all of us as whether we're engineers or, or and whether they are, uh, they stay technical, whether they decide to go into managerial roles, uh, the whole thing. If you really find what makes you happy, I think not only are you going to be able to contribute significantly, but you'll really be doing a world of good. Well, great way to wrap up the show. We're out of time. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Now, our guests today have been Deb, uh, Deb Gruby and Jim Porter. For more details about the topics we discussed or to find out more about the Doing a World of Good program, visit doingaworldofgood.org. And that does it for this episode of Doing a World of Good. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search for us on your favorite podcast directory or visit doingaworldofgood.org. On behalf of everyone at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, I'm Bob Norp. Thanks for listening.